This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choosing, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. How you doing today, Matt? I'm doing fantastic. What you, uh, what you up to right now? You, I see you on your laptop skimming. I was just looking at our review page on iTunes. How are you feeling about it? I mean, it's okay, but it's looking a little sparse. We really appreciate all the attention we, and love. We love attention. That's the thing I like more than this anything. This is why we're doing it. It's for my ego. And my ego is damaged right now. You know what, though? There's a remedy. What is that? More reviews. What's enough reviews? When, when will you be happy? I don't know if I'll ever be happy. That's a separate question. But I may be able to sleep a little bit better with a couple more reviews. We're at 23 reviews right now. Five stars. Yeah, yeah. Going strong, guys. Appreciate it. What was it in uh, Mario 64? There was 100 stars, right? Yeah. Oh, mm, 120? 120. You're right. Let's go for Mario 64 levels. Let's get 120 yeah. reviews. That's then our goal for 2015. Mario lovers out there, Nintendo lovers, get out there. Say what you think. Only if you're going to give us five stars, though. No, I want the truth. Do you? Yes. The truth can hurt. You know what? You'll be better for it when you hear it, though. So please send in all your reviews of any type. Only if they're five stars. Only if they're truly five stars. Okay, let's say that. Let's yeah. compromise there. Okay. Yeah. So today I talked to a professor named Dr. Rene Hen, and he's a neuroscientist at Columbia University. And Dr. Hen's research has been looking at the role of serotonin in pathological states such as anxiety and depression. Well, serotonin, I mean, yeah, I've definitely heard of serotonin. That's for sure in the context of mood, and uh, you hear about a lot, like, that's often a target to treat depression. You've heard of things like SSRIs, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This is one of the most common form of antidepressants. So serotonin is a monoamine neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are the chemicals that neurons release to signal the other cell and give it some kind of information. Neurotransmitters, serotonin being one of those, they go to receptors at synapses and whatnot on neurons. What do we know about the receptor side of serotonin? Yeah, so serotonin gets released and then it binds to, like you said, receptors. And the thing is, there's not just one kind of serotonin receptor. It turns out that there are lots of different types of serotonin receptors. There's 1A, there's 1B, there's 2A, there's 2B. I could, keep, I could go on for a while, there's lots of them. But the important part is there's different ones and it seems that each one of them kind of plays different roles. And so Dr. Hen made some pretty important findings early on in the field of serotonin receptors. He cloned these receptors. He took the, them out of the DNA and isolated them. And then he took those cloned receptors and then knocked them out of mice, meaning that he made genetically modified mice that lacked those receptors and then looked and see what kind of behaviors do they exhibit. And it turns out that by knocking out different subcategories of these receptors, you get very different behavioral changes in animals. That all sounds really promising. Has uh, Dr. Hen made any other landmark discoveries? He has. In the journey towards discovering how serotonin plays a role in different behaviors and in depression, he found a really interesting type of interaction between serotonin, antidepressants, and something that's known as adult neurogenesis. I've heard of neurogenesis. Uh, didn't we have an episode on that a we, little while back? We sure did. It was with Dr. Amelia Eich. And if you'd like to learn more about that, I would recommend scrolling down and uh, listening to that. That was a good episode. I agree. It was great. Yeah. So neurogenesis, to refresh everyone's memory, is the creation of newborn neurons. And this happens in adulthood. And so the question had been, what are these newborn neurons doing? Or what's the role that they play in the adult brain? One thing that had been discovered beforehand was that antidepressants, SSRIs, actually increase the amount of neurogenesis in the brain. 
And this was a kind of interesting finding, but Dr. Hen made then the more important discovery that the behavioral effects of antidepressants, or at least part of the effects, seem to be regulated by neurogenesis. That's absolutely amazing. I, who would think that it works that way? That seems... It was a very unexpected and very exciting finding in the field that led people to go, okay, maybe these newborn neurons are actually related to mood. His lab has now spent a lot of time researching how these newborn neurons relate to mood, and they found tons of really compelling evidence that the newborn cells that happen in adulthood contribute to sustaining sort of natural levels of mood. And if you have, say, a decrease in the amount of newborn neurons, you have problems in regulating anxiety and depression. All right, Anthony, you have me hooked. So let's, why don't we move on to the interview? That sounds great. I'd want to just point out before we get to the interview that this is a very special talk for me personally, because my current advisor, I work with a guy named Dr. Michael Drew, worked for Dr. Renee Hen. So I have kind of a direct link to his research and his research actually really inspired me to want to start neuroscience. So it's kind of nice that on our 30th episode, I get to talk to a, a very inspiring person in my history. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, man. You're welcome. Yeah, let's, uh, here we go. Let's do it. Dr. Renee Hen, take us away. Perk up them cochlea. Perk up them science the sort of large questions are really um, how does the brain work I mean how does it produce emotions how does it produce uh, decisions and uh, in a sense I've always sort of used my molecular tools to get basically into the brain not so much uh, to study the specific question I went into but more to kind of get a window into how the brain works sort of okay. so um, sort of the way I started was um, by cloning serotonin receptors and at that time I wasn't even focused on serotonin it was just uh, an homology cloning sort of so there was that uh, idea that uh, this belongs to a large gene family so by homology we were looking to fish molecules that were similar to some that had already been cloned. And at that time, the only receptor really that had been uh, isolated was uh, the beta-adrenergic receptor, as well as maybe a few of the rhodopsins. Sort of, so by using homologies between these, we looked for receptors in the hope of finding some interesting receptor expressed in the brain. And uh, it turns out that I cloned serotonin receptors. Okay. On, on accident or just? Purely by accident. Really? Of, I mean, obviously, it belonged to a family that, yeah. uh, that we were after. But I wasn't at that point really uh, married with the serotonergic system. Mm -hmm. But then after cloning it, and that's something that's very common with cloners, you start getting interested in the biology of the system that you just isolated, sort of. So serotonin uh, at that time was already clearly uh, known to be important for, for depression and was also important for the effects of uh, hallucinogenic drugs like LSD, psilocybin. So clearly uh, you had access there to a system that if manipulated could maybe give you insights into things as different as mood and anxiety as well as uh, the sorts of uh, alterations of consciousness that you get with uh, hallucinogenic drugs. Sort of. So that seemed pretty exciting at the time. So after realizing this relationship between the two, was the idea of testing mood and anxiety a question there or a thing that you'd always wanted to do? Or did that suddenly just open up and you were like, wow, this would be, well, I have tools and It just questions. opened up because uh, obviously at the time, uh, hallucinations seemed much more interesting, sort of. <laughs> but uh, it's not as easy to study hallucinations in a mouse as it yeah. is to study uh, mood and anxiety. So it's almost like uh, I went to mood and anxiety because in, it was feasible in mice. I see. But you really wanted to study hallucination. Well, or, I mean, at that time, seems... I already had some experience sort of uh, uh, with the hallucinogenic effects of 
mm. of serotonergic compounds. So that's something that I knew about a okay. bit more than I knew about anxiety and depression. But then I uh, realized that uh, the potential sort of, of understanding how specific receptors, serotonin receptors, contribute to the effects of drugs like Prozac was also going to be really in, in interesting in terms of understanding the circuitry of mood as well as possibly finding novel antidepressants. So I've always kind of stayed on both sides, sort of the, the, the sort of more basic side, which is how does the brain generate these emotions, but also maybe how can we harness it to produce better antidepressants. Awesome. I would love to, we'll, we'll get to some of the research that you're doing now and how you are trying to answer some of those questions about how does mood and anxiety relate to, or how is it regulated? Um, but can we go like, let's go pretty far back and if we could start Tell me where maybe you grew up, what your life was like uh, growing up. So I grew up um, in the east of France in a region called Lorraine, uh, in, a, in a little village that's near a town called Metz, uh, which Metz is one of the main towns in Lorraine, which means it's a small town <laughs> compared <laughs> to the rest of, uh, uh, of uh, the rest of France. And I, uh, my father was a farmer when he was young. So I grew up sort of um, in a farm sort of uh, environment, sort of. And at some point, he moved to the city, Metz in that case, because he wanted uh, to make more money than he was making in the farm, sort of. So I kind of transitioned uh, as as a kid from oh, farm life to, to city slicker to city life, sort <laughs> yeah. of. Yes. And was that an easy transition, or? Yeah. Well, I was very young, sort of. We moved. Yeah. Uh, uh, we moved. Uh, from the farm to the, the suburbs when I was three, but I kept returning to the farm, you know, like on, on weekends and oh, yeah. uh, on, on vacations. So I still have, I, I actually still have a, um, a very fond memory of uh, living on a farm, farm animals. Uh, and in some ways, maybe my interest in biology started there, sort of mm. being close to nature, close to animals. Yeah close to animal behavior uh, is sort of probably what got me maybe early on interested in that direction. Sure. So maybe that did spark some of your scientific mm -hmm. interests. Is there any, when you started going to school, did you have interest in science or did you, at that point in time, what were you thinking when you were doing even elementary, middle, high school? Well, at that era? time, um, so so that's the time now when I was in the, the suburbs of Metz, but it was sort of an interesting neighborhood because... Um, it was built on an old fortification that dated back to the war of 1870, when Germany basically uh, um, invaded France and occupied it basically from 1870 to 1918, the end of the First World War. So what was interesting about that fortification was uh, two things. One was that it was built out of the local limestone, and it's as a result full of fossils. So just climbing the fortification, uh, you would find fossils pretty much wherever you looked. Sort of. So I got interested as I was exploring the, the backyard or the distant backyard sort of, yeah. into fossils. And um, What and kind that, of fossils? And like uh, dinosaur bones or, or no, just no dinosaur shells? Bones, or mostly shells. shells sort of. So okay. things that look like uh, snails. Yeah. as well as uh, the sorts of shells you still find in the sea now, mm -hmm. like oysters and mussels. And not like bullet shells from the war, or maybe and some of those? there were also bullet shells from the <laughs> okay. war. So, so there were two types of explorations. One was uh, the outside of the fortress sort of uh, uh, with the fossils. Then there was the inside of the fortress, which was full of tunnels and- uh, Oh, that's exciting. And, um, actually even dangerous areas because it's a, until only a couple of years ago, it had not really been cleaned of mines and shells and, oh my goodness. Uh, and unexploded <laughs> bombs. So it, it was slightly dangerous actually to walk around. Well, that makes it even more fun as a kid to yeah. So <laughs> to there were explore. military signs surrounding it sort of. Oh too. yeah. Did you have to break in then to get access? Yeah, maybe? you had to break in a yeah. little bit. Yes. <laughs> Good. So that was a, a very porous fence. <laughs> People weren't watching it all the time. Okay. Well, cool. That's awesome. Um, what was, uh, I guess, did you stay in that area for long or did you So move? I stayed for yeah. quite a while in that area and uh, went to, um, up to high school, sort of. After high school, um, I got interested in, uh, in joining um, 
a school. I mean, in France, we have that system sort of where you have like uh, universities and you have also something called grandes écoles, sort of, which is a, it's a parallel system, sort of. And um, so I went to Nancy, which is another town in Lorraine, to prepare sort of for an exam to get into one of the, the grandes écoles. And then that got me into a school in Paris, because by that time, I, uh, my interests had sort of evolved uh, into more urban things, like uh, around music, uh, movies, and it seemed like Paris was the place to be. Sort oh, of. Yeah. <laughs> cool. so, so I went to that Grande Ecole in, in Paris, and there I got, um, but I continued still in the sort of science direction, sort of. So... I specialized at some point into um, physiology, uh, biochemistry, molecular biology. So I kind of uh, pursued sort of the nature interests, but at a slightly more mechanistic level. Sort of, okay, when yes. I was in that school, sort of. And I majored at the end of that into a mixture of physiology and biochemistry. I see. Okay, so you went maybe with the intention of also enjoying the music and the arts. Which, which I, did you which do? Which I did plenty of because okay, I lived in the, in the Latin Quarter. Oh, yeah, okay. So I lived above a movie theater, so I got to... Um, did you, can you tell me about some of the film or mu music that you saw then? Or then you I, I was a big movie fan at that time. I'm still a big movie fan, so... The, the directors that were really um, hot for me at the time were like, uh, I loved the Italian directors like Fellini, um, yeah. Victorio De Sica, and, uh, and even some of the more um, edgy ones like Pasolini and, uh, and a few others. So, okay, yeah. so that was one series of movies uh, I went religiously to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there were the German directors at that time also, were okay. pretty interesting. People like Wim Wenders, Fassbinder, sometimes. Yeah. So, so that's I would say the the cinema style. I still like it actually. Great. Yeah. So awesome. I still, I still go see that every so often. It's good to. I I think it's good to have even if you have a very like hard science background to be you know exposed or at least like yeah. appreciative of those types of art. Did you? Okay. So did you move on then to uh, college directly after? So that yeah. was sort of. Oh, that was your. That was your. That was college. That was a college thing. Yeah, that's then, right. Then I guess um, I spent some time in um, uh, the university in Paris. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was called Jussieu. I don't know if it's still called the same. Sort of. It was. Um, what I remember from it was not so much the classes, which were kind of like was huge amphitheaters with. Um, with thousands of kids, mm -hmm. but uh, this was the the series of years that followed uh, May '68. So there were a lot of demonstrations. So mm -hmm. we would really be very uh, uh, heavy into the demonstrating in the streets. I and, see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and shouting. And is this? Can I make the that. assumption that this is where you then became experienced with your serotonin system? <laughs> Yeah, it's about the same time. <laughs> about yes. the same time. That's about right. Uh, 68, 69. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Did um, now that you had sort of biochemistry background, did you did you have an idea of what things you wanted to? You, you said you started doing some molecular cloning. So at type that time, work. I, so I, I was sort of um, I had a biochemistry teacher I liked very much. And um, I was asking him about going into a neuroscience lab because it was the time sort of when you when you transition from university to to the first rotations before you actually join a lab for a PhD. The system is a little different, but uh, I was kind of rotating with that biochemistry teacher and um, I told him I really want to do neuroscience. And he told me, it's too early, neuroscience is too messy, we don't <laughs> understand anything yet. So why don't you learn molecular biology? And he, he told me there is that lab in Strasbourg who is very good at molecular biology and you learn the, the basics and then once you have learned some hard facts you go back to neuroscience <laughs> so in a sense i mean i didn't know i was going to follow that path at the time but yeah. do you uh, think thought, that was good advice yeah i thought it was very good advice yeah so, so i went into a hardcore molecular biology lab in strasbourg uh, i knew the, the the town so for me it was a, sort of a familiar place because it's not far from where i grew up and also the guy was already pretty famous at the time, sort of. So that was Pierre Chambon, who was one of the sort of fathers of molecular biology. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what did what did he do, and what did you how did you compliment uh, so, uh, or follow up really, to some of this uh, stuff? He was one of the early cloners, sort of. So that was the time when uh, restriction enzymes were discovered, when the basic mechanisms of transcription. So what Shomo was famous at the time for, at the time it was he had isolated and purified the first uh, RNA polymerases, and he had classified them as A, B, C. Mm-hmm. Now they are called one, two, three, so but it's the same. <laughs> I wonder why. That's maybe the Jackson Five song. I'm just <laughs> so that was his first sort of claim to fame. But then he went on to to characterize some of the basic uh, transcription factors. He characterized the factors that bind the Tata box, which is one of the the factor that allows transcription to initiate at a particular place. Then he characterized uh, a number of enhancer factors. And I was involved in that work, the enhancer work. Okay. And these and are at all... That these, time, yeah. At that time, we were working with uh, viral promoters because these were much more accessible than uh, promoters of, of mammalian genes. So uh, my thesis was on uh, the enhancer of one of the virus called uh, SV40. And these are all, like you said, we've been talking about uh, RNA polymerase and uh, these Tata box. So these are just like some of the fundamentals of how biological systems make proteins. Yeah, I and- mean, uh, what Shomo was sort of brilliant for at that time is that he understood that uh, understanding the regulation of transcription was going to open the way to understand very complex uh, regulatory events. So from there, if you just follow his trajectory after that, from understanding transcription in viruses and bacteria, he moved on to uh, looking at transcription factors in mammals. And eventually uh, that led him to um, purify and clone the nuclear receptors. First, the receptors for steroids like estrogen, progesterone, corticosterone, but ultimately other members of that family, such as retinoic acid receptors. So he basically opened the door to uh, a type of regulation of transcription that's no longer just basal transcription, like the Tata box factors, but regulated transcription, whether it's regulated by hormones or by uh, nuclear factors like retinoic acid that turn out to be... um, very important for for developmental effects. We're still using uh, these tools now to understand how embryos develop and how transcriptional program appear, disappear as a, as a, an organism develops. Cool. Yeah, and, and those things have relationships to mood and and yes. now the cognitive functions that you yes. that even you went into. So um, so now that you became a hardcore molecular biologist and you have these tools, did you say now I get to go and be a neuroscientist? Yes, more or less. More or less. So uh, after that sort of PhD, I was looking sort of for a lab in the US and I already was bent on the US because I had done a trip a few years before sort of while I was in my uh, PhD in Strasbourg. I had done um, a hitchhiking trip through the U.S. Did you? I landed in New York and hitchhiked uh, to to San Francisco. Oh, that's awesome. So with a a detour by the south, sort of. So that uh, really um, made, was the reason why eventually I came back to the U.S. Oh, yeah. That I had such a good time in that two-month trip that... I wanted to were see you were you hitchhiking later. in cars or trains or everything? So the way it worked is uh, we started. I was with one friend and uh, we started in um, in New York. And uh, at that time we wanted to reach New Orleans, sort of. So we were two guys hitchhiking. That doesn't work. So we, uh, very rapidly we understood we had to split if we wanted to get anywhere. So we said, okay, let's meet in ten days in New Orleans. Okay. And uh, we had a a system where we were going to meet at a particular time, I think six in the evening, (laughs) every night um, uh, in the French Quarter. What's the name of that? Place du Monde, I think. (laughs) So the middle of Place du Monde in the French Quarter at six o'clock, because you can't predict when you check which day are you going to get there. So we started on a given day and then every day at the same time until the other one shows up. (laughs) So I think I met my friend on the third day sort of uh, oh, wow. of that uh, but that trip sort of from uh, New York to New Orleans was was a was a lot of fun I yeah. mean I still have some of the most vivid memories of my life yeah. from that trip <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's so interesting, I think, how vacations or trips to very novel places cement maybe because of the massive change in your daily routine or so much novelty flooding yeah. because like really cements in long lasting memories. But so, I, I mean, there was similar. something there was something special about that trip because you're there on the road alone. And so it's already a selection. The people who are picking you up. So that's already a very sort of uh, select portion of the population who picks yeah. up a hitchhiker with uh, with a growing beard and uh, <laughs> and dirty clothes sort of. And then um, it's a total surprise because it's a way to discover a culture without predicting who you're going to meet. So you have that element of surprise from one car to the next. And uh, for me, it was really a revelation sort of because I was discovering a part of the world I did not know about, cultures I did not know about. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was that element of total randomness, but selected randomness yeah. sort of, in, a, in a style that I liked. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, so that that was the the taste of America that you that enjoyed. That was the taste of America. Great. Yes. I'm glad. I'm glad it was good. That's. I love to hear <laughs> that. Um, so then you came. Uh, you knew you wanted to come to America. So you planted yeah. the seeds, sort of. So basically, yeah. I was definitely looking for labs in a few of the big American cities: New York, San Francisco. Uh, Boston. And uh, at the time, uh, my boss in, uh, in in Strasbourg was friends with Richard Axel. Because I guess they were, they are both very early molecular biologists mm -hmm. with a similar path, sort of. Axel was also a cloner, just like my mentor in Strasbourg, and uh, was already very famous for being an imaginative cloner. So in a sense, I did not go really to a neuroscience lab, but I'd heard that Axel was starting to collaborate with Kandel. Uh, was a famous neuroscientist already at the time and was getting interested in cloning not just stuff anywhere in the body but in, but the, brain. in the brain. Okay, yeah. So I figured, well, that's going to be a good environment because I'm going to know the techniques, but I'm also going to have access to, to neuroscientists. And it, it worked out very well because at that time, Axel was really starting to collaborate not just with Eric Kandel but also with Tom Jessel. And that triumvirate if you want, became very potent, sort of. And these guys are still collaborating today, sort of. They are yeah. still very close and have benefited immensely from each other's expertise, sort of. So that really got me into cloning brain receptors, and that's how the, the serotonin receptor cloning I see. happened, but purely by chance. Was that in, that was in Richard Axel's lab you started, went well, down the path of? What or? happened was that I started... Uh, Axel at the time told me, why don't you look into the, the olfactory system? Because they, it seems like there is a bit of a mystery there. There could be a lot of receptors. At the time, Axel thought that there could be a recombination in the olfactory system, just like in the immune system. And at the time, he was really not focused on any system. He just wanted to clone interesting stuff. Yeah. So he sent me to, to a lab, which was Jane Dodd's lab, to just learn a little bit about the olfactory system. And I started devise, to devise strategies to clone receptors, basically, based on homology. And that's sort of when I developed the technology to do homology cloning, which at the time did not go with PCR, but just with oligonucleotides that were homologous to potentially conserved regions. So it's really when I returned to France with that technology after my postdoc that I cloned the serotonin receptors. Oh, but it's all the groundwork had been laid oh, I during see. my postdoc in the Axel lab. Okay. Um, what were you, what were some of the highlights of that whole experience then when you started cloning these subsets of serotonin receptors and then I guess getting a an interest in what are they doing in the in the biology? Did you, is this point did you start putting them into animal models or looking to see what their uh, so the, their the functions way, were? The way it worked is the first ones I cloned were from Drosophila because the Drosophila genome was a little smaller, so it was easier to do homology screening on Drosophila genomes with the 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 nucleotides we had at the time, the oligonucleotides. But then I rapidly realized that the Drosophila nervous system was not well understood. So even though I could clone the receptors and uh, visualize where they were expressed by in-situ hybridization, we had little idea of what the neurons were doing. You had that scattering of the neurons 
in the brain of the fly without any idea of how to go to the next step. Sort of. and so what happened at the time was that these sequences, these Rosophila sequences, turned out to be very useful to fish by the next step of homology screening mammalian serotonin receptors. I so I used the Drosophila sequences to pull mammalian equivalents. Okay, so look and, for ones that looked very similar to Yeah, those. and, and yeah. there were a ton of them. We did yeah. not know that at the time, but there were 15 of them. So we probably cloned about 10 out of these 15 at that time. And there in mice, the knockout technology appeared, okay. which did not exist at that time in uh, in Drosophila. So you could you could take that so, per, out and then ask the question, what is so the function? So you could kind of bypass a little bit a lot of physiology and pharmacology and go to behavior directly from a knockout. Yeah. So that was a bit of a gamble because uh, you could have been in a situation where the receptor turns out to be lethal then you don't have a mouse to study. Or you could have the opposite situation, which has happened in other systems where the mouse doesn't have a phenotype and then you're stuck because there's a lot of redundancy. But in the serotonin system, we were lucky in the sense that they are not critical for development. So you had a live mouse that lacks now one serotonin receptor completely, and you can study its behavior. And that's when we got uh, first aggressive mice with one of the receptors we cloned, serotonin 1B, then anxious mice with another one we cloned, serotonin 1A. And that really led us into two paths that are still ongoing. So to this day, we are still studying the circuitry underlying aggressive behavior in one of these mice and the circuitry underlying anxiety and depression in that other mouse. So since then, it's been now, since the cloning and the first knockouts, it's been um, more than 20 years. Yeah, wow. And we are still digging into these two circuits. How, was, that a, was that an exciting moment when you finally, you know, get the, the mice bred, you are, you know, maybe just saying, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to expect to see, but we might see some mood differences. And then, well, I mean, the, the exciting, the first exciting moments was to clone, because then you realize that you have a, a protein that looks like a receptor, you do binding, and you, it fits with the described pharmacology. We were using iodinated LSD at the time, which was a very ubiquitous ligand for many receptors. Mm -hmm. So we immediately knew, well, these are serotonin receptors. So that was the first exciting moment. The knockout was exciting from a technical point of view because there were very few knockouts at the time. So to have a mouse that lacks both copies of a gene and that is alive and moving around. So that was, from a technical point of view, very cool because uh, we knew we had done something special sometimes. But there was no phenotype initially. It took quite a while to figure out the aggressive phenotype of the first knockout mice. Okay. Because they, you know, when, when you house them together, until they get into adulthood, you really don't see anything. Then as adults, you start seeing fighting between the little mates in the cage, and then you have to separate them. So that was the first hint that something was going on. Okay. But that did not happen immediately. Huh? Yeah. So it mm -hmm. happened when the, the mice were 10 weeks old. Sort of. Okay. So then suddenly you're noticing, oh my God, we're, these guys are fighting yeah, a lot. Yeah, they're fighting. We have to separate them. And then you start looking, do you see that in the regular colony or not? And you start, at that time, we knew nothing about behavior. I mean, I was uh, back in the, not in the, in the Chambon lab at that point, but in uh, in a lab nearby, sort of, nobody was doing neuroscience, sort of. Yeah. So we had to really find um, people who knew behavior, sort of. So there was a, there was some interesting. Uh, How did you make connections with that? Or well, yeah. I mean, at that time, uh, there was basically one very old school lab in Strasbourg, just one who had done um, traditional uh, anxiety-related behavior, sort of. The guy was called Mislin, René Mislin. And he, he was an old guy already at the time, but he had spent his life studying uh, not the, the brain circuits. He was really from the behavioral school where you study the behavior of various strains of mice or rats and give them pharmacological tools to see whether you can reduce their anxiety, increase it. So he was actually not uh, studying aggressive behavior, but he had been doing behavior for long enough that he could give us some hints into how to do Test for aggressive behavior. Okay, so it, that's how we learned. Sometimes. Okay, was this, by the way, is this is this your own lab at this point? Are you so at running? That point, it's yeah. my lab with um, 
two students and the technician. Okay. Could that you, would it. you mind? Okay. Could you t maybe put us in or your mind at that time in terms of what uh, it felt like to be, you know, doing your own science and I guess now f also discovering some pretty interesting things. I mean, that, that's what I wanted to do all my life. So I yeah. to have my own shop and uh, yeah. kind of uh, decide what I was going to study. So for me, that was a blast. I mean, to yeah. be able to, uh, to decide that I was going to work for a few years on aggressive behavior, sort of, for example, yeah. <laughs> that, that was extremely satisfying. Even, even though I was very naive and I didn't really realize at that time what it would mean to study that in detail, sort of. So we were learning basically the literature as we were doing experiments, sort of, because what we were good at we meaning me and the student who was working closely with me, what we were good at was molecular biology, sort of, is uh, cloning things. And because uh, mm -hmm. I had learned that, I taught that to the student. So there are a few things we could do readily. But for behavior, we were both totally ignorant, sort of. So that actually that sort of created a bond that uh, with the particular student who made the knockout, I've kept that bond uh, to this day. Oh, wow. He now studies very different things. He has his own lab in France. Uh, yeah. His name is Frédéric Saudou. Okay. He studies Huntington's disease, sort of, uh, and has done very well uh, for himself in that field. But at the time, we were really doing these tests of aggressive behavior together. And we didn't have really a, a behavioral testing room. There was a, a room to breed transgenic mice. So we did the aggressive testing in a mobile home that was parked in the... <laughs> in the parking in front of the institute yeah <laughs> that we kind of cleaned did you and buy it and oh no, yeah. we didn't. it was, it was just hanging it was around abandoned there yeah <laughs> so that's how we did the behavioral testing oh. something that aya cook today would not approve yeah. of <laughs> i love hearing these diy projects that started back at your you know just you're like i want to do this i'm going to <laughs> I mean, Use whatever was, tools we yeah, have. Pretty much, that was the only way we could do it. Then, obviously, I mean, we we published it and uh, we got some money to to equip a behavioral room, sort of, and uh, cool. with, with the right testing apparatus and so on. Okay. Um, what would be maybe the next step? Were you? Did you remain in, in Strasbourg for a while, so or I did remained, you? So at that time, what had happened is that when I was a postdoc in the Axel Lab. I met my wife, who at the time was um, a student in a virology lab. So we got married at the transition between France and um, between the U.S. and France. So she came back with me to to Strasbourg, worked in the Chambon lab for a few years. Uh, so we were, I think, in France together for five years. That's when I did the, the work on the aggressive mice. And uh, then we decided to return to, to the US. So we looked for jobs. I looked for jobs in different places and landed up in New York at Columbia University where I had been before. Sort of. Does your wife also, she does, she is molecular biologist. So she was she, a virologist. She's I guess. a virologist. Yeah. So she has a molecular background. Now she works on cancer. So she stayed closely more closely to developmental biology and cancer, sort of, which is, uh, which for her was something that she learned in the, the Chambon lab, which was actually at that time the main emphasis of the Chambon lab, developmental biology, embryology. And when she returned to the US, she transitioned. She still does some developmental biology, but also transitioned to cancer biology. Do you mind maybe just talking a bit about what it's like to be two scientists kind of couple? Well, and so, I mean, we obviously work on different fields. Yeah. Uh, Do you guys teach each other then a lot about? We teach each other a lot about, yeah. but we also, in many ways, um, I don't talk that much about science at home because we rapidly got kids. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, the main conversation I would say over the past 20 years was about uh, raising, kids. raising kids and um, <laughs> and, and taking care of them. Sometimes. Yeah. So okay. I would say at home, it's been more kid focused. And then at work, um, um, at work, we meet sometimes to chat about science. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, when you got to then to uh, Columbia, was it sort of a conscious decision to still continue doing mood related regulation? Was that sort of the, the interest that you had at the time? Well, so at that time, I was in a, in a position where I had um, cloned a whole bunch of serotonin receptors. And um, 
had the first knockouts. The aggressive mouse was there. There were a few knockouts cooking also. So I had not really at that time really chosen the direction. One of the knockouts was aggressive, one was anxious. Um, I was interested in the anxiety aspect because there was a clear pathological link sort of. I mean, anxiety is a, a psychiatric category. Aggression is was not and is still not really a psychiatric category. It's more like um, an endophenotype that you see in different categories, but it's not recognized as a disorder sort of. So there was an easier path toward anxiety. And um, um, the thing that happened is the first grant I wrote in the US was um, more linked to anxiety. Um, I didn't get it. So at that time, there was also uh, quite a bit of work between that serotonin receptor I had cloned and knocked out the serotonin 1B and drug abuse. So I met a guy uh, at a meeting who was, in, um, was working at UCSD, Mark Gaillon, and he told me, why don't we work together on, uh, on drug abuse? I mean, I'm a pharmacology expert in that receptor, and you have all the molecular tools and the knockouts to study it at, uh, at another level, sort of, so why don't we join forces, sort of? And I liked him, and so we wrote a grant together. We got it. So that led me into drug abuse. Okay. <laughs> the role of serotonin 1B and drug abuse, which for me was not, again, again, historically, that was not really a problem because there was still a, a little bit that idea, well, you study whatever happens sometimes. And again, it was a bit of a window into a brain function that I thought was interesting sometimes, mm. even well, though I had not planned it that way. And your experience hitchhiking allows you to just go with the flow and be yes, able to just... Yes, so I had so. also some personal familiarity with the field, yes. Yes. <laughs> that, it seems like that's a good strategy yeah. in terms of you let... So at that, time, at that time, serotonin 1B had more to do with cocaine, sort of, because there was quite a bit of a regulation of the dopaminergic system. And Gaillon had published quite a bit of work showing that mice or that pharmacological interventions on that receptor influenced the response to cocaine. So that we embarked into a, a proposal that was uh, related to NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, both on the cocaine side and on the M and M um, MDMA side, M yeah. MDMA being uh, ecstasy. So we were pursuing basically responses to cocaine and ecstasy in these knockout mice and trying to figure out what circuits were responsible and so on. But then progressively I removed toward, um, toward anxiety and depression because the mice uh, we kept generating had phenotypes more related to anxiety and depression. And uh, for some reason it just um, uh, got me more and more interested sort of. And also uh, at that time I was in a department already or very close to a department of psychiatry because the links between the department of neuroscience and psychiatry at Columbia are very strong. So I got more and more interested in the psychiatric dimension sort of, of serotonin. And that brought me back sort of to anxiety and depression. Okay. So now there's questions of how is serotonin regulating these psychiatric illnesses? Did you do a lot of work directly related to that before you got into neurogenesis? Because I know that that has been a large core of your uh, research yeah, background I mean, and it's related to those two things. I mean, what what we um, did for, for quite a number of years, sort of, and we're still doing that, is try to figure out sort of uh, out of the many serotonin receptors, which ones are important for the actions of um, the SSRIs, drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, and others. And um, one of the receptors that um, turned out to be important was uh, called 5-HT1A. And that receptor is abundant in the hippocampus. So at about that time, when we were studying sort of uh, the role of 5-HT1A with, a, with uh, an idea to figure out what circuit were critical for the antidepressant effects mediated by that serotonin 1A receptor, Ron Duman at Yale had shown that antidepressants like fluoxetine that we were using um, increased neurogenesis in the hippocampus. Sort of. So at that point, there was really very little uh, in the way of connecting 
neurogenesis in the hippocampus with antidepressant action. It was more an observation. And uh, I had a postdoc at the time, Luca Santarelli, who was very adventurous. So, so he said, well, why don't we uh, figure out sort of whether um, antidepressants uh, stimulate neurogenesis in mice that no longer respond sort of to antidepressants, which were these mice lacking the serotonin 1A receptor. And uh, to our surprise, both his and mine, uh, the mice lacking the serotonin 1A receptor do not respond, do not produce a, a neurogenic response to fluoxetine. So that was an interesting correlation, sort of. You have mice that don't respond to fluoxetine in a few behavioral tasks, behaviorally, and in terms of neurogenesis. So then there was a bit of a... Um, we still, particularly me at the time, I still think thought, well, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, the hippocampus is important for for learning and memory. I mean, what does that have to do with the effects of antidepressants, sort of? <laughs> so Luca was pushing, sort of, to do uh, a more mechanistic sort of uh, experiment. And then we realized, sort of, together that um, the only way to get to causality was to get rid of neurogenesis and then ask, do animals now still respond to antidepressants? And that's when we embarked, sort of, uh, there was Luca as a postdoc, Michael Sachs, who was a student at the time, and me, we, we were basically, we, we interrogated the whole sort of scientific community to find, well, what's going to be the most effective way to get rid of neurogenesis in the hippocampus? And, um, inspired by basically anti-cancer cancer therapies, things like radiotherapy and, um, and, uh, and chemotherapy, we decided, since we had access to, um, to an X-ray machine at Columbia, to uh, design a lead shield that would basically expose just uh, a part of the brain containing the hippocampus to the, to the radiation. And uh, we developed basically a, a procedure to get the right dose of irradiation because, I mean, at that time it was not really clear uh, what dose to use and also how to not generate too much inflammation. If you put too much x-ray, I mean, you get inflammation and then you get all sorts of uh, uh, negative side effects. So to get just the minimum dose to get rid of neurogenesis. And this, yeah, it just kills off all the dividing cells. So now we're Kills gonna... the dividing cells um, and um, basically... Um, probably modifies the niche sort of in such a way that neurogenesis doesn't come back. So you have a tool that's very clean where you can irradiate, wait two months for the animals to recover, for inflammation to disappear, and then test the animals in pretty much any behavioral task you, you want to test. Sort of so it took us about a year to work out the conditions to get rid of neurogenesis in a clean way. And then we started testing these animals in models of uh, antidepressant response and found that in several of these models there was no effect of fluoxetine or other antidepressants in these mice. And that's sort of what got us really started with neurogenesis. Because until that point, I have to say I was not convinced <laughs> that it had anything to do with antidepressant really? responses. Yes. But Luca was very... Luca was pushing. Pushy, yeah. <laughs> Are you happy about that? <laughs> or, I'm happy about that. That's yes. good. <laughs> it's good to have butting heads sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and people that are skeptical, actually, too, you know. Yeah, and then, I mean, obviously, at this point, the story is more complex. There are yeah. some effects that are blocked by irradiation or other ablation techniques. Some others are not. And that got us really interested, not just in the antidepressant effects, of neurogenesis, but in just the function of these new neurons. Okay, yeah. So, so that's that, really yeah. what we are, what we are doing now. Okay, so great. Yeah, because it's it, you're, in that case, you were interested in a, from a, a therapeutic sense. It seems to be yeah. important for these drugs, but then that opens up a door to, like you were saying, what is it in the nor in a, yeah. in a healthy animal? And yeah, can we talk then about the current status on how newborn neurons affect our mood and our emotions just in a regular st state? Well, so I mean, so basically. Um, what we did after that was really to, to look at uh, the two types of functions, sort of the mood and anxiety functions, which was our initial interest, but also the, the function of the dente gyrus in general. And that's really what got us interested in pattern separation, sort of. Okay. Because by that time, 
the Moses had really published their influential papers linking the dentate gyrus to pattern separation. So that really got us to, to think in terms of not just the mood role of the hippocampus, but more how do we reconcile sort of the cognitive role with the mood role? How can we maybe reconcile pattern separation with problems that are seen in anxiety disorders and in depression? And that's really what we are still gearing up to now, because we are starting to have a framework, but we don't really yet have the proof that if you improve pattern separation, you're also going to improve mood. Could you t- say what pattern separation quickly, like what that so is? Pattern and what, separation yeah. was originally described as a, a neuronal operation that is performed by the dentate gyrus and that allows the dentate gyrus to disambiguate incoming inputs coming from the entorhinal context and to separate that. So initially it was not described really as a behavioral uh, operation. It's more by extension that that neuronal sort of readout has been sort of extended to uh, what we call now more behavioral pattern separation, which is the ability to disambiguate similar situations and to encode that them as different patterns. So there is sort of a, a neurophysiological and computational meaning to pattern separation, which is the operation performed by the, the dentate gyrus. And then there is more, how does that translate into behavior, which some people call behavioral pattern separation, other people call that contextual discrimination, learning, and things like that. And so you're, you've mentioned the, the area, the dentate gyrus seems to, if you look at the, the anatomy, and then, now, and then there's been a lot of evidence linking it physiologically, that this area is performing that task. And that's also where we see these newborn neurons. Yes. So then does that, that begs the question, what, how do these newborn neurons influence both pattern separation and these things? So could you talk about some of the conclusions that are, or where we sort of stand on that and so, on that uh, ground? I would say there are really two models, sort of. Uh, there is a model that's been favored by uh, Fred Gage, who is one of the lead investigators in that field, and also to a lesser extent by Susumu Tonegawa who have basically kind of thought sort of as the young neurons in the dentate gyrus as being encoding units that have special properties and as a result encode novel information better than the mature cells. And that's what allows when an animal is confronted to novel information to encode that novel information better maybe and separate it better from previously stored information. That's sort of one of the the views about how young neurons contribute to pattern separation. The other view, and the two are not exclusive, but the other view would be that the young neurons are modulatory units. So they do not encode on their own novel information, but they modulate the function of the mature cells. And that could be via their interactions with local interneurons, whether it's inhibitory local interneurons or excitatory local interneurons. And as a result, by contacting the local microcircuit, there is an amplification that small number of cells now signal gets amplified by the local interneurons. And that allows the whole circuit to be modulated up and down. Okay. And do you think, are there circumstances where you, that would happen where so i mean we have some evidence from optogenetic work and more recently from uh, calcium imaging work that that could be the case that they could be modulatory but we haven't definitely proven it yet so i would say the two hypotheses are still uh, on the table at that point okay there's a few key experiments that are difficult to do that are going to be needed I, i think the key one really is one that we are currently Uh, gearing up to, which is to image sort of the young and the mature neurons. And then as the animal is performing a pattern separation task and then silence the young neurons and see whether the activity as a result of the mature neurons is changed. Yeah, the prediction would be if they're providing this modulatory role to help the mature cells encode, you would see that whole population, the mature population changing if you've silenced so a direct yes. manipulation of them, I see. Yeah. 
And you have to see that in real time, I guess, too. You have to see that in real time as the animal is doing a pattern separation. I see. That sounds very difficult, but yeah. But I mean, the tools tools exist. It's just a question now of putting the different tools together sort of, and and doing it. So it remains a difficult experiment, but it's technically feasible. So that that gives me great excitement, I would say. Excellent. I guess we've sort of touched on some of the future directions, but do you have any other sort of overarching... Like maybe, do you really, do you want to change paths again one more time? Just flip the Well, I mean, uh, sort of, so um, in, in terms of directions, I, I am getting more and more interested in human studies, sort of. So at some point, um, when you work with mice or rats, you hit a wall, which is that you are using models of anxiety and depression, but you don't really know whether the mouse is anxious or depressed. And uh, it's probably not anxious or depressed uh, using the, the human definition of these terms. Sort of. So at some point you need to, to validate your findings uh, in the human population. Sort of. So what I'd really like to, to prove in the coming years, or disprove, is um, uh, whether if you stimulate neurogenesis in the human population, can you improve pattern separation? in a population, let's say, that has a deficit there, and how does that translate into mood and anxiety in that same population? So that's sort of something that uh, I would like to be able to to contribute to in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, great. Could you maybe, like, we'll, we'll wrap up soon, but maybe talk about, in a general sense, like your... Do you have a particular kind of scientific philosophy or a... Um, Did you have any mentors that kind of have helped shape kind of like the scientists that you are? Yeah, I mean, we obviously have, uh, I mentioned sort of um, that biochemist uh, Shabville sort of who had a very big influence on determining which path I was going to follow sort of. Um, Now, in terms of direct mentoring, I would say two, two big influences. One is Chambon my mentor in Strasbourg, who really taught me about molecular biology, sort of, but not just molecular biology, I would say in a more general sense, sort of, uh, the rigor of scientific experimentation, sort of, because at the time I was uh, much more loosey-goosey, sort of, and uh, not as rigorous, sort of, as I, I should have been, sort of. So he, he, had, he was really bringing to the table enormous scientific rigor, sort of, how to control an experiment, how to design it, sort of, and how to really uh, multiply the controls to be sure that um, that your interpretation is correct. So that sort of was a very useful, I uh, thought, lesson. And then I moved to, to New York, and my mentor there as a postdoc was Richard Axel, who was... Uh, who is also a rigorous scientist, but I would say that's not what characterizes him. He's an ex- incredibly imaginative scientist, sort of. He's one for whom the, the sky is the limit, sort of. And uh, he's never shying away from the most difficult questions, sort of. So at the time when I was joining his lab, he did not know much about neuroscience. But it did not matter because he was aware of what the big questions could be, sort of. So he had that knack of always pushing you toward asking a big question. And it turns out that for him, uh, cloning the olfactory receptors was was a big question because it was a window into understanding how that sensory system works, sort of. But in reality, when you look at his trajectory, it wasn't about olfaction. It was more about figuring out, using his tools to figure out how the brain works. And if you look at what he's doing now, He's still working on olfaction, but more as an entry point in how the brain decodes information, stores information. So clearly the things he's most interested in now are how is that information decoded and stored? And that gets into questions of uh, olfactory memory. And I'm sure at some point it's going to lead him to things like um, consciousness, let's say, or, or, or larger questions. So that kind of had a big influence on me in the sense that... Um, it set me on a path that I've tried to emulate, sort of, uh, to some extent, sort of, which is uh, always push the envelope a little further, sort of. Use serotonin as a way into mood. Use neurogenesis as a way into um, how 
the hippocampus works. And ultimately, it's not going to stop there. There is going to be a next question and a next question. And again, it's going to lead to some of uh, our existential, existential questions like uh, free will, consciousness, and so on. So, so I don't, I'll probably not get there, but at <laughs> least uh, yeah. I'd like to, to move in that direction. Like you said, it's, you're setting the stepping stones that maybe we'll yeah. be able to get there. Yeah. yeah. Also, as a professor and a mentor, you obviously have lots of young scientists that uh, you directly influence and that you get inspiration from and that you get to help train. Uh, could you tell us what what's the thing you enjoy most about doing that and uh, maybe some of the, also your philosophy of, of teaching and mentoring? So, I mean, I, I would say it is in many ways in science, um, you don't have... Uh, if you only look for results, it's not gratifying enough, sort of, because results don't come that often, sort of. So, uh, what I think is very um, cool about mentoring, sort of, and teaching students or postdocs in your lab is that you, you get to have some influence on them and you watch them grow. And that's a sort of much more steady process, sort of, that's taking place. It doesn't really matter if a discovery comes every week or every month. That growth is something you see over three, four, five years sometimes. And um, to see a student start naive and inexperienced and uh, defend a beautiful PhD, I think is extremely satisfying. Sometimes. Yeah. It's kind of like watching your kids grow sometimes. Yeah. With the advantage that uh, students and postdocs listen to you much more than your kids. <laughs> so in a sense, <laughs> there is less frustration yeah, right? <laughs> Oh man, you should bring your kids into lab and say, look at these, these wonderful people that listen to my, my instruction and look how well they are doing. <laughs> I'm sure they won't listen to you, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Um, uh, do you have any other things you'd like to add? Any sort of topic that you're very passionate about? No, I mean, I, I would say um, science, and I say that to students and, and, and postdoc, is still one of the most beautiful professions. I mean, in the sense that you have that enormous freedom to explore things you're interested in, and it never stops being exciting, sort of. So. To my students and postdoc, I always say, stick with it. Uh, it you love it forever, basically. Yeah. Well, Renee, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, fiction, nonfiction, whatever you want. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free audiobook of your choice to try out their service. The Brain Matters team recommends Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert. In this book, a prominent Harvard psychologist explains why we, as human beings, are terrible at predicting our future happiness levels. We make basic and consistent mistakes when evaluating the emotional impact of varying outcomes. Dr. Gilbert uses a slew of jokes and anecdotes to frame the basic research on the psychology of happiness. We can guarantee that you will be happy about your decision to sign up for Audible and listen to this book. To pick up this book for free, or another one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters. The transition music that you heard today came from the artist Roulet first and second by Revolution Void. And the outro music that you're listening to right now came from the artist 2814 from the album Birth of a New Day, which is on the Dream Catalog label. If you enjoyed this song, I recommend you check out Dream Catalog bandcamp.com they have tons of albums that you can listen to and download for free uh, go check that out and we want to thank them again for letting us use their music on our show see you next time <laughs>